Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. The spirit of 1968 has returned. From protests to boycotts and even riots, direct action is back in vogue as protesters impatient with the pace of change raise consciousness about the issues they want to put centre stage. The Critic's political editor, Graeme Stewart, asks Professor Jeremy Black, Senior Fellow at Policy Exchange, whether we are witnessing a new age of emancipation or the undermining of democratic institutions. Professor Black, let me start with perhaps the the extreme, or at any rate, uh, the the purest refutation for direct action, and that's we have a functioning democracy, shouldn't all of us just vote in, vote out, or at least write to our MP to bring about the changes we want to see? Well, I think those are perfectly reasonable views. We are not in a dictatorship, we are not in a scenario like Eastern Europe in 1989, I think that's perfectly reasonable. We've just had a a general election in Britain, in case people haven't noticed, in um, December uh, 2019. We have a democratically elected government. I think that's entirely reasonable. The United States is heading for uh, elections in November. So I think the uh, the danger of always with direct action is that it appears to be, uh, in democratic societies, a substitute not only for the rule of law, but also for the the method, practice and ethos of, of democracy. I used to uh, live in Singapore, and, and um, certainly maybe a bit before my time, but during the, the Lee Kuan Yew years, one occasionally heard politicians responding to criticism from, from journalists and campaigners by saying that uh, you know, if they wanted to enter the public arena, they should put up for election. Is it, uh, it always struck me that that was the kind of argument made in order to, to, to shut up dissident voices. Isn't there a case for saying not everything can take place within the the elected uh, democratic arena? Uh, Not everyone is up for that. And there there must always be, in a pluralist society, different ways of expressing priorities. Well, we've we've actually had experimentation with that very recently in Britain. We called it a referendum, and uh, we had several referenda in the twenty teens, um, and um, three, I think, uh, national ones. And uh, that was a method that caused its own uh, issues. So I think that the problem with mass action of the type you're endorsing or appear to be endorsing is that it is not just anti-democratic, but it also immediately directs attention to whoever is willing to be most violent. Um, And, you know, your listeners may well feel sympathetic with the goals of this particular agitation. but, you know, there are other people who who take different viewpoints. And I'm not sure whether, I mean, to give you an example of the potential tensions we're talking about, would you really like to see um, Islamic um, groups uh, fervent for their religion, beating up homosexuals or women who wear short skirts or throwing acid, which is a form of direct action we've seen recently in Britain? Is that really what people who want direct action are endorsing? 
And whenever, you know, this is not a new thing. Whenever I, as a historian, people have told me that they're in favor of direct action, always in order to try and shock them. And none of these are views I endorse. I've said, well, let's go and sort of burn down an abortion clinic, beat up a few homosexuals and go shooting badgers tonight. None of those are views I endorse, but those are equally direct action. I wonder, though, if we look at the, the long, I mean, as you say, I mean, direct action has a, has a long history, and indeed in, in Britain, as elsewhere, a, a pre-democratic history, the, the Peasants' Revolt, iconoclasts, levellers, early fighters for trade union rights, suffragettes, I, I, I could go on. As society didn't reach perfection in 1928, just when men and women got the vote on, on equal terms, the, 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 the pressure for change has carried on. Shouldn't we accept, whilst rejecting violent direct action, shouldn't we accept that, that, um, that, that, that loud and vigorous protest is part of the, the internal impulse of political engagement in, in British life going back centuries? Well, you're running together a whole host of very different um, uh, act, uh, episodes there, many of which, as you correctly say, are in pre-democratic era, many of which, in fact, were far from unviolent, whatever you might think. The Peasants' Revolt was accompanied by, on both sides by killings and uh, murder. Uh, iconoclasm was scarcely a, a non-violent practice. So I'm not sure I would agree with your sort of benign account of the past. Um, we, have, we saw one of the most uh, difficult episodes in British history, uh, one with large numbers of people killed on all sides uh, as a result of what you call the direct action of the Civil War. You, you sort of name-checked the levellers, which was a later episode in that. So no, I'm not sure that I'm as sanguine as you are uh, about this. And um, I think the substitute for democratic means, however unpleasant, and you know, the whole point about democracy is that it, re is, it rests on the legitimacy of accepting that the other side uh, might well win. Once you throw away that, then you don't have democracy and you have, in fact, um, violence. You might not call it violence. It might be intimidatory. Um, you know, you might have people uh, outside people's houses shouting or um, sort of harassing them in the streets. You might feel that. You cite the suffragettes. The suffragettes, of course, um, you know, uh, were responsible for attacks of arson. They were responsible for many acts of violence. I mean, if you're endorsing that, you ought to come clean instead of just citing them as a benign force. So as I've said, I am not uh, in favor of it. And I would ask people to reflect in a society in which correctly there is agitation about um, racism, there is correctly agitation about many uh, unfortunate and undesirable and disgusting things, do we want those who endorse those views to have direct action? Because direct action is as much direct action for the racist as it is direct action for the anti-racist, and people have got to really understand that. I think many of us would share your uh, fear and, and, and uh, condemnation of any form of violent action. But not all direct action is, is violent. It can be uh, uh, passive. I mean, Gandhi's passive resistance was a form of direct action. Uh, the, the Boston Tea Party, uh, you know, no one was killed in that. It, 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 was a, it was a very effective form of direct action. Um, uh, is it a, perhaps a mistake to brand 
protest together with, with violence. The two are not necessarily in, in, in the same compound. Well, that's certainly true, though they can lead to the same compound, and if they are part of illegal action, then they are part of the, the same compound. I mean, there is in Britain a, uh, a full range of expression of opinion, though that's being curtailed as thought crimes are being legislated against um, so-called thought crimes um, in part of a changing society, something I personally am very wary of. But again, you may endorse that. Um, but the points I would be wearing is we do actually have forms of direct action. In case we haven't noticed, people can actively vote and things. Though that is a regular form of direct action. You can go and write to or see your member of parliament. You, you know, there are forms of direct action. The problem is that it seems to be that there is by uh, by castigating a society as um, inherently um, um, evil, which is in fact what a lot of the commentators are doing. You know, when they talk about institutional racism, let's be clear about this, they're talking about a society which is evil and lacks legitimacy. Once you take away legitimacy, then you take away legitimacy from the democratic process, and then in fact you might as well go around killing people. You might as well do that, because obviously if you think the state is uh, illegitimate, then what on earth are policemen? They are illegitimate agents of a of a uh, of a disgusting state. And you know, it, you've got to be aware of this, Graham. You make direct action sound attractive. Direct action, some of its greatest exponents. You cite Gandhi from the 1920s and 30s. One of its most direct uh, exponents from that period was, of course, Adolf Hitler. Great one for direct action. Now, if that's what people want, they ought to say that. If what they want is the legitimacy of mass protest, the legitimacy of the intimidation of the state, the attack on the, uh, on the agencies of law and order, if that's what they want, they ought to say that and they ought to accept there is likely to lead to Hitler as they are to Gandhi. So beyond voting, uh, what are the forms of protest or drawing attention to issues that, that you would think would be appropriate in a, in a democratic society? Well, the ones that we actually have at the present moment. I think we can express opinion very freely in, in British society. You can form a, you know, you can organise. I mean, at the present moment, there is, as I know, yesterday, for example, um, I signed a petition online against removing the statue of Thomas Guy. There is no, sh and there will obviously be petitions taking the opposite point of view. There is no shortage of ways in which you can represent your opinion. And indeed, due to the social media, this this has become more easy. I'm not sure I particularly welcome that, but it has become much more easy. Um, so that in some respects, there is something curiously quaint and antiquated about standing there and trying to beat up policemen. I mean, I happen to think it's disgusting, but it's also quaint and antiquated. Uh. Why do you feel that we seem to be going through a particular spasm of direct action now? And I may be drawing the word now broadly. I'm thinking back to perhaps 1999 when there was the anti-globalisation riot in Seattle. Perhaps that, that will, future historians will look back as that as one of the occasions that started this modern phase of, of direct action. What do you, to what do you attribute this, this, what appears to be a movement towards direct action at, at the moment?
Well, I think you're being very non-global, Graham. I think if you were looking at direct action on a global scale, you ought to be asking what of its what's its levels in the societies that are most populous, which is such India and China. Um, so direct action there is more likely to be matters, for example, of murdering people in India who marry across caste grounds. That's a pretty common form of direct action. Um, in China, of course, as we know, there are quite a lot of riots in the countryside against um, the expropriation of land for development purposes. That's a form of direct action. Uh, that India is a democracy, China is an autocracy, but both of them practice forms of direct action. Some of them are sort of connived at and some of them are not. Now, if you're talking about uh, the West, you're talking about a minority of the world's population, but if you want to put that foregrounded, I, what I would say is, yes, you have a whole host of issues out there, but you've got to be careful. You started uh, with the 1960s. The 1960s was also the decade of um, a rise of the, at the end of the 60s, a rise of the right. Uh, Richard Nixon won the 1968 election. Um, uh, de Gaulle won the 68 crisis in France. The following election was won uh, by uh, uh, by the right. Um, Heath, of course, in 1971 in Britain. So one's got to be very careful about deciding that this represents the entire, as it were, public mood. You certainly have a large number of people who are at the present moment stating that this, the system is un delegitimized. And if you wanted to be cynical or you wanted to be Marxist, what you might say is here you have the crisis of a capitalist uh, economy. I'm not a Marxist, of course. A crisis of a capitalist economy creating expectations uh, for young people that they would go to university and then have jobs subsequently, which they didn't really have to do any work, but they were able to have a comfortable living. Uh, obviously, you have commentators who are the same. I mean, in many universities, you have people who seem to fondly imagine that they should float upwards to positions of influence and profit uh, without actually uh, having to work hard or without actually having to engage with the nature of the society that they're in. So yes, I think there are all sorts of issues out there, and it's no accident that people echo the notion of 1968. But as I've said, 1968 was not, which was part of the, uh, the, the closing of the great boom, the long boom, so-called, so was not a very attractive active example to look at from the from the 1960s to the to the 1970s I, I grew up in the 1970s when it, it seemed to me almost hardly a day went by without one or more trade unions calling a, a strike and uh, outside the outside the public sector that that level of direct action on wage and conditions uh, with perhaps a hint of class antagonism thrown into it uh, I mean it has has gone uh, the new protests are not about paying conditions or class but more about what, what their proponents say a social justice. Isn't that, isn't that maybe a, a natural mutation given the weakening of collective bargaining rights? We've gone from uh, a protest about class to, to protest about other forms of group identification. Well, that's, yes, again, interesting. I mean, obviously, one of the uh, bifurcations in the left uh, over the last few decades has been that the, um, if you like, the what you might call the middle class left um, has focused on identity politics, which advances its interests, 
helps it to get jobs in the vastly inflated public sector. Um, where, and they've rather shafted the, the traditional working class, many of whom, of course, voted in Britain um, conservative in the December 2019 election, and many of whom are the supporters of Donald Trump in the United States. So um, what I would suggest to you is that, in part, this is, part, this is an aspect of the evolution of the left. It's an aspect also, I mean, you, you were talking in terms of transition. It's an aspect of, as it were, post-Cold War um, alignment, so that many of the people are the next generation of those whom in the during the Cold War uh, were quite happy to demonstrate against uh, Western uh, governments uh, whilst living in the West, and at the time, same time completely and utterly oblivious of the plight of those under communism. And you know, you've seen this in Britain. There have been, uh, obviously over the years, uh, mis uh, missteps, there's no other way of, you know, of, of referring to them. Um, but at the same time, there has been, um, you know, a significant number of very disturbing murders among, for example, uh, young black men in London, which is very disturbing. And what I find bizarre, and of course, what was it, two weeks ago, a two-year-old child was shot in Halston um, in, in part of a shooting of this type. And what I find bizarre is that people seem to want to drive the police out of the very communities where um, lawlessness potentially is a major problem. So I actually see this as a, as a breakdown of a social compact. And the social compact is that we do not arm ourselves because we want the um, the state to protect us and to spread a sense of security and law and lawfulness, and I see that the delegitimization of the of the state as part of the breakdown of the compact, and the you know the response to that is obviously the world of Thomas Hobbes, of uh, the one he depicted in his work Leviathan, um, and I think that there is a very troubling aspect of what is going on at the present moment. How does civil society, in inverted commas, fight back uh, against this this attempt to delegitimise itself? Oh well, here we're talking about culture wars, and I think that this is a more profound and long-term issue. I mean, it has been said recently that the Conservatives win the elections and lose the culture wars, and I think there is a lot of truth in that. And I and. I mean, my experience of universities uh, and indeed uh, my following of uh, the BBC suggests that there is not a, uh, a equal playing field. There is not a freedom of opinion. There is instead a view in which conservative voices, even though um, in the recent elections they have, to the best of my knowledge, uh, not been regarded by the electorate as in some way pathologies, uh, that these are treated very unreasonably and unfairly by institutions that masquerade uh, behind the idea of freedom of opinion. Um, so I think that there are practical problems here. I think that uh, it is no accident that 
the current furore uh, relates to issues of national identity, national continuity, the trust between the generations, all of which are at risk from an extraordinarily present-minded, biased and negative portrayal of the country that uh, we live in. One, one institution that seems to me has a, a particular difficulty at the moment is, is the police. I mean, it, it's reasonable to see their decision not to intervene as normally they should have intervened when there were scenes of violence in Bristol and in, in London in the, in, the, in the last fortnight, as a deliberate decision not to get involved in situations where they might be portrayed as, as uh, engaging in that well-worn phrase, police brutality. So one can perhaps see why they held back, but of course in holding back, they are weakening their role as, as protectors of law and order. Uh, it, it seems to me they're, they're, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. What can institutions like, like the police do in, in this very difficult situation? Well, I think you're right. I mean, may I give you a sobering reflection that um, we had this uh, happen um, uh, in the British Isles within our lifetime. And in the end, you know, there were police, police were, as it were, driven out of areas of uh, Belfast and Londonderry and in the end in Operation Motorman you had the army go in and uh, uh, reintroduce a measure of social control and order so I, I think yes this is very troubling, a very troubling situation. There are communities in the country in which a portion of the youth um, I don't think it's necessarily the entire community, but it's certainly true of some so-called community leaders as well, um, are teaching people and believe that the police are an alien force. This is deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, and of course, uh, it is essentially one which sectionalizes the community and which brings in all sorts of unattractive and unappealing uh, attributes. For example, um, if you're a Muslim man and you go to an NHS hospital, are you entitled to demand that you should not be seen by a female doctor? Um, are, you know, you, as I'm, I'm making these points because people so often think of authority as something which is negative. Actually, it isn't. Authority, as in the provision of health services, as in the provision of education services, as in the provision of law and order, Authority is something that seeks to actually uh, uh, fulfill norms in, from, that are publicly accountable. Um, and these public accountability can only rest on a degree of social acceptability. Throw away the social acceptability and then you get all sorts of chaos. And that chaos, some people out there find particular aspects of the chaos attractive. Um, some people don't. Um, but the, the, the difficulty is that once you move to the notion that you can have direct action as validating your rejection of order, then you really are moving towards, uh, at the very least, intimidation, if not violence. And I mean, I, I think one's got to be clear about this. Protests are often designed to intimidate. And that is why one has to be wary of them. Now, some governments see down protests. Uh, you may, for example, 
uh, have views on um, hunting. Uh, when the Countryside Alliance mobilised a very large number of people to demonstrate in London, uh, the government at the day continued resolute. Now, um, uh, pre presumably they were encouraged in that because they knew that their supporters and sympathisers did not agree with the Countryside Alliance. But in terms of the number of people that were put on the streets then, I think it was quite considerable. But you see, what you've got is a situation in which the police appear to take a view that the law is something in which they can determine when they think it's convenient to enforce it, which really does raise questions about other aspects of, uh, of law enforcement. So I would urge police or authorities to consider not just the particular scenario in front of them, but also the broader add-on consequences. So you could take the view that the failure of the police to act in Bristol actually was the immediate spur that encouraged violence in London. Well, we, we started this podcast by talking about uh, democracy and, and, and you know, expressing your views by, by, by voting for them. I wonder if we can, can end this podcast on, on the same theme. Um, we vote for a government. We have a government. How is the government handling the situation and what can it do better? Well, I don't know what the intelligence information coming into the government is. I think the government at the present moment is uh, flailing under a range of simultaneous problems which are absolutely acute. Um, and, of course, the simultaneity of, of pressure on government is a feature that affects all of them, something that, incidentally, often isn't really captured in historical works that often, as it were, have their chapter on the Irish question or the economic question and, you know, fail to look at the situation as it's coming across on the day. Um, I mean, I have to say that I think that the Home Secretary is correct in drawing attention to what is going on. If the government wanted to be truly cynical, which I don't think it does, uh, the more lawlessness there is, the more that you then tend to see a reaction against lawlessness. Um, and as I said, the example of French politics after the, uh, you know, the chaos of 1968 is a very good instance of that. But I don't think the government is being cynical. I think it understands that what you are seeing is a, um, a sort of breakdown in confidence more generally about the ability of Britain to operate as a system. And some years ago, I wrote a, a history of Britain since the 60s in which I put underneath as the question mark ungovernable people. And I was thinking then of things like the petrol driver's strike in the beginning of the 2000s. Well, you're seeing the same sort of thing here at the present moment. And of course, if I was a um, representative intelligence agency of a power hostile to Britain or against Britain, China, Russia or Iran, I would be thinking, well, you know, this offers opportunities, putting money, putting propaganda, uh, spreading messages these in the way of, of these agitators provides us with a great opportunity. So I see this as not just an aspect of modern culture wars, but as a continuation of the tensions of the Cold War in what is a very difficult and troubling international uh, context. Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much. 
If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.